Good morning. One of the uh, myths, or I should not say myth, I should say misunderstandings, one of the misunderstandings of Zen practice is that uh, it's a mental practice. So we do use our mind, but actually it's a physical practice. So the way we practice and actualize and deepen our practice is with, with this. It's a physical practice. This was a, a koan for Dogen Zenji, the founder of uh, Zen in Japan. So a koan is a public case, something that you take up and study. It's kind of a mystery or a puzzle. So the koan of the relationship between what our mind does and needs to do and the mystery of the body was a lifelong koan for, Do, for Dogen. He wrote about it, he brought a teaching back from his teacher in China and quoted him several times and once, oh, I was going to ask if we could do the self-fulfilling and self-receiving and employing samadhi. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. He quotes it in, in that text, which is in the middle of one of the first things he wrote when he came back from China. And in that text, he says, without engaging, from the first time you meet a master, so from the first time you get it that you need to practice, from the first time you meet a master, without engaging in incense offering, bowing, chanting Buddha's name, repentance, or reading scriptures, you should just sit. You should just wholeheartedly sit and thus drop away body and mind. So that's a very famous passage and we say it often. From the first time you realize you should practice without engaging in incense offering, bowing, chanting Buddha's name, repentance or reading scriptures, you should just sit. So this is one of the, the hallmarks of Zen practice. And this is what many, many people for hundreds of years take as the essential part of Zen. In fact, you know, even today we'll see people who think that's all Zen is. We shouldn't do anything else. We should just sit. Don't get engaged in these other things. So Dogen repeated that teaching of his teachers as soon as he came back. And then, uh, those of you who've studied the beautiful writings of Dogen, you know, know that he wrote very well. He liked to take a passage and tweak it, take it inside out, poetically rephrase it, reinterpret it, and then he would do it again in another writing. So it would bring out more of the meaning each time. And this particular one, uh, scholars have counted and and studied, so I didn't make this count myself, but one scholar has found that he took that same passage and repeated it eight times in his writings. So it was really interesting to learn, though, that it wasn't Dogen who said it. He never, he never uh, gives attributions, and so now he would be sued for plagiary, probably, but back then you didn't have to. Back then, either people knew or it kind of didn't matter. You were just reworking the words of the Buddha. Everything goes back to the Buddha anyway, so it didn't really matter. Attributions. So he took this teaching of his, of his teacher and put it, embedded it in several different texts eight times. So for people who have just read it as if it were Dogen's words, we think, oh, that's what he meant. Just sit. Forget this other stuff. But if you keep reading his works, then you run across the places where he tells you Instead of, without engaging in incense offering, he says, you should offer incense. And then he tells us why. And then there are times when he says, you should do these bows, and he tells you why. So that's what I want to tell you about today. Some of these reasons that even Dogen brought out for why we do these practices. So the first one, without engaging in incense offering, incense offering is a mystery. It's a big mystery. It's an ancient, ancient mystery for us. The fact that we take something and we set it on fire and it's gone. So it's deep in our DNA, this mystery. 
I, I do credit what scientists say, which is that we carry all the, the ancient record of everything that's happened to mammals since we, since we arrived on this planet, or whatever, we came from this planet, but we carry the record of all these ways of understanding, all the practices, all the experiments, we carry that. So we have in us our ancestral understanding of the mystery of setting something on fire and watching it go away. Part of the uh, reason that we set things on fire is that, we're, the ancient reason, is that we're trying to communicate with those who've left us. They are gone. And in ancient times, and still actually to this day, we set their bodies on fire and they're gone. So part of the reason that we burn things is to send a message to them, send them things that they need. Part of the reason for incense offering is to communicate with uh, unsettled spirits, hungry ghosts, because in, in Buddhist uh, cosmology, hungry ghosts, the unsettled, those who've crossed over but are still not settled, have very narrow throats. They've got big bellies, very narrow throats, and yet they're hungry, they're insatiably hungry for the teaching and for some peace. So through this narrow throat, incense can pass. So Buddhists forever have taken it as part of our responsibility to uh, bring peace to the hungry ghosts. So we offer incense. And it also contains, even in, Buddha, in uh, Dogen's time, uh, an element of sacrifice. Of course, Buddhists and Buddha himself were some of the first uh, humans to criticize the practice of sending animals across. So in, in India of that time, one of the ways that you accompany dead dignitaries into the other world was to burn, make huge animal sacrifices or as offerings to people who'd crossed over, you'd send them things they need, whole armies. You would burn things to get across to them. So instead of doing that, Buddha said we should burn wood, and we should burn fragrant wood. So it, ha it contains that, and it also contains sacrifice because even at that time and now for sure, incense is expensive. So uh, sometimes when I think about it, I realize I've got a piece of incense in my hand. I'm basically burning money to send up. One other element, ingredient in the practice of offering incense is that it's used as a metaphor for how we transform our karma. It's very difficult to transform our very durable karmic understanding. So it's likened to perfuming. You, we put a little perfume into our karmic chains and, and habit field, and it slowly changes, about at the rate of perfuming an ocean. <laughs> but it changes, and perfume, I mean, excuse me, incense is considered one of the agents of that change. So Dogen brings some of those points out without engaging in incense offering, bowing. Bowing is not a difficult one to understand because it's so physical. As soon as you bow, uh, you understand what's happening. As soon as you bow, you understand, one understands that uh, humility is involved. So we are bowing down and something is changing. As soon as we bow down, something changes. It come, we, are, we, are, we come face to face with our resistance to bowing down. We come face to face with our relationship to the earth. We come face to face with the ego when we bow. So that's part of it. But we're also uh, encountering the earth when we bow. We're putting ourselves in a different relationship with our reality when we bow. So Dogen often recommends bowing, and he recommends bowing to the uh, earth spirits also. So we are changing our relationship to protective deities when we bow. 
without engaging in incense offering, bowing, chanting Buddha's name. So we do these chants for Buddha before meals, during um, sessions, and uh, when do we do it? Ninju. If you live in a monastery, you do it before the day off. And Dogen has two slightly different lists. But before that, there was one thing I wanted to mention. I just ran across it. One of the times that Dogen stipulates that we should bow, I quite liked in his record of uh, the rules, the forms, the Chiji Shingi. This is the same person who said we should just sit. He said, the uh, Zen student serving as garden manager should never fail to go back to the main assembly of monks when they engage in ceremonies. And at the vegetable garden, mornings and evenings, that monk should never neglect to burn incense, make, make prostrations, and recite Buddha's names, dedicating the merit to the rain god, rain god and earth spirit. So he actually here lists three of the things that he tells us in other places not to do. He says we should um, make incense offering bow and invoke the names of the rain spirit and earth god. So these are expressions of reverence. The garden manager is out there bowing to the, to the rain god and earth spirit. This is part of Zen practice. And under Eheji Temple, which was his big temple, there was a, uh, excuse me, a dragon, so, and it had a name. And part of this, the recitation of the names, was to invoke the protection of the dragon underneath Eheji Temple, which is an image that I have become quite fond of. Now I'm trying to figure out what the, the guardian spirit under the Houston Zen Center is. And I encourage you to think about what the guardian spirit is right underneath you. So, you know, Houston is very flat and it has never been a mountain. You know, all the, all the, the contortions and geologic shifts that have happened and here it was, used to be a very active area and California's a very active area. Houston has never been a mountain. It's always been an ocean from ancient, ancient times. So it's probably like a very big alligator under us, very giant crocodile, protective spirit. And also making prostrations Here's another way to, that we have to make a switch that he recommends. For him, maybe it was common, it was a common understanding by then, but for me, this is a switch. Always these things are communications to the other side. These are always communications to the world we can't see. So the world we can't see includes, in, for our way of thinking, the way everybody else is thinking. We can't really see that. But in Dogen's time, they thought that what we can't see are all the deities that are protecting us, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas that are actually out there ready to help us. We just have to call on them. We just have to get their attention a little bit so they'll turn their beneficent attention toward us and watch out for us. So all of these practices are also an appeal. Will you help me? I'll say your names, Bibashi Buddha Butsu Dayosho. I'll say the names of the deities. Will you help me? Will you turn your attention to me? Part of it is an admission that we're not alone and we need help, and it's an appeal. So that admission for Dogen is a powerful, and this is back to our psychological way of understanding. Once we admit that we're not single, isolated beings and we're asking for help, the trans transformations start taking place in here. So it paves the way to one's own awakening. We start to make room for our own awakening, make some space. And without engaging in incense offering, bowing, chanting Buddha's name, 
repentance and reading scriptures. Repentance is, also has these two dimensions. It has the dimension of coming to terms with the fact that we uh, are imperfect, and so therefore I repent. I apologize for this mistake I've made, for whatever it is, this error. I repent. I hope not to do it again. That's a big part of it. But the other part of it is the same appeal. By repenting, we're also making room. We're asking for witness. Not just person witness, although that's really important, but Buddha witness. It's like in other chants that we do, uh, Dogen says, confessing and repentance are lack of understanding before the Buddha. We melt away the roots of our transgressions. So these repentance practices are transformative. They melt ancient uh, karmic roots. So repentance isn't just about some small deed, although what we it's like a child, you know, I apologize for spilling this milk, but it melts tremendous karma because we see that it's possible to acknowledge our own role in this situation. It, it melts ancient karma. Reading scriptures, I was really encouraged. I like the list of reasons to study that you have posted in the library. It's a great text up there. That's basically what Dogen would say. There are all these reasons to study. He said it's transformative inside, which I've experienced and feel. It's transformative outside because you are putting out these good words into the um, atmosphere. And in the same subtle way that perfume wafts through the ocean and changes uh, karma, reading words out loud is powerful. It starts to change things. And it is pleasing to the Buddhas to hear. So we're not just reading it for ourselves. We're reading it for Buddhas to hear. So the best way to read sutras out loud, reading them silently to oneself is mainly to transform the inner field. Reading them out loud is to transform the outer field. So reading them out loud, that's one of the reasons why when we're doing chanting, it's a mystery to most, most of us, why don't we follow the sentence structure? And why do we just keep chanting? When you're chanting to yourself also, when you start reading sutras aloud, you do it the same way because you're reading it to go past your discursive mind. You're reading it for the Buddhas, basically. You want to not be tripped by the discursive uh, games that we play. Now I have a story for you. The Ant Hill. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jetta's Grove, Anatta Pindika's Park. Now, on that occasion, the Venerable Kumara Kashapa was living in the Blind Men's Grove. Then, when the night was well advanced, a certain deity of beautiful appearance, who illuminated the whole of the Blind Men's Grove, approached the Venerable Kumara Kashapa and stood at one side. So standing, the deity said to him, Bhikkhu, Bhikkhu, this anthill fumes by night and flames by day. Thus spoke the Brahmin, Delve with the knife, thou wise one. Delving with the knife, the wise one saw a bar, a bar, O venerable sir. Thus spoke the Brahmin, Throw out the bar, delve with the knife, thou wise one. Delving with the knife, the wise one saw a toad, a toad, O venerable sir. Thus spoke the Brahmin, throw out the toad, delve with the knife, thou wise one. Delving with the knife, the wise one saw a fork, a fork, O venerable sir. Thus spoke the Brahmin, throw out the fork, delve with the knife, thou wise one. Delving with the knife, the wise one saw a sieve, a sieve, O venerable sir. Thus spoke the Brahmin, throw out the sieve, delve with the knife, thou wise one. Delving with the knife, the wise one saw a tortoise, a tortoise, O venerable sir. Thus spoke the Brahmin, throw out the tortoise, delve with the knife, thou wise one. 
Delving with the knife, the wise one saw an axe and block. An axe and block, O venerable sir. Thus spoke the Brahmin, throw out the axe and block. Delve with the knife, thou wise one. Delving with the knife, the wise one saw a piece of meat. A piece of meat, O venerable sir. Thus spoke the Brahmin, throw out the piece of meat. Delve with the knife, thou wise one. Delving with the knife, the wise one saw a Naga serpent. A Naga serpent, O venerable sir. Thus spoke the Brahmin, leave the Naga serpent. Do not harm the Naga serpent. Honor the Naga serpent. Bhikkhu, you should go to the Blessed One and ask him about this riddle. As the Blessed One tells you, so should you remember it. Bhikkhu, the Buddha is the only one who can satisfy your mind. That is what was said by the deity who thereupon vanished at once. Then, when the night was over, the venerable Kumara Kashapa went to the Blessed One. After paying homage to him, he sat down at one side and told the Blessed One what had occurred. Then he said, Venerable Sir, what is the anthill? What the fuming by night? What the flaming by day? Who is the Brahmin? Who the wise one? What is the knife? What the delving? What the bar? What the toad? What the fork? What the sieve? What the tortoise? What is the axe and block? What is the piece of meat? What is the Naga serpent? Bhikkhu, the anthill is a symbol for this body made of material form, consisting of the four great elements, procreated by a mother and father, built up out of boiled rice and porridge, and subject to impermanence, to being worn and rubbed away, to dissolution and disintegration. What one thinks and ponders by night based upon one's actions during the day is the fuming by night. The actions one undertakes during the day by body, speech, and mind after thinking and pondering by night is the flaming by day. The Brahman is a symbol for the Tathagata, who kept telling him to keep digging, accomplished and fully enlightened. The wise one is a symbol for a bhikkhu in higher training. So he's wise, but the Buddha is the one who says, keep digging. The knife is a symbol for noble wisdom. The delving is a symbol for the arousing of energy. The bar is a symbol for ignorance. Throw out the bar, abandon ignorance. Delve with a knife, thou wise one. This is the meaning. The toad is a symbol for the despair due to anger. Throw out the toad, abandon despair due to anger. Delve with a knife, thou wise one. This is the meaning. The fork is a symbol for doubt, because it goes two directions. Throw out the fork, abandon doubt, delve with the knife, thou wise one. The sieve is a symbol for the five hindrances, namely, the hindrance of, of uh, grasping lust, the hindrance of ill will, the hindrance of sloth and torpor, the hindrance of restlessness and remorse, and the hindrance of doubt. Throw out the sieve, abandon the five hindrances, delve with the knife. This is the meaning. The tortoise is a symbol for the five aggregates affected by clinging, namely form, feeling, perception, formation, and consciousness, affected by clinging. Throw out the tortoise, abandon the five aggregates affected by clinging. This is the meaning. The axe and block is a symbol for the five cords of, of uh, disabling desire, forms cognizable by the eye that one uh, has thirsting desire for, tanha, things connected to the nose, ear, touch, and consciousness that one has um, blinding desire for. And the piece of meat is a symbol for this lust. Throw out the piece of, of meat, abandon, uh, what do they call it? Thirsting lust. Delve with the knife, thou wise one. This is the meaning. The Naga serpent is a symbol for a bhikkhu has, who has destroyed the taints. Leave the Naga serpent. Do not harm the Naga serpent. Honor the Naga serpent. This is the meaning. That is what the Blessed One said. The Venerable Kumara Kashapa was satisfied and delighted in the Blessed, blessed One's words. This is another example of practicing with the body. So even though we're sitting, 
were actually exploring the body and the sensations. After I read this, I um, was sitting with my body. It was quite nearby. <laughs> and I felt a feeling arise, and I thought, it's the toad. It's the despair due to anger. So I dealt with the knife and <laughs> threw out the toad. This is the Buddha telling us to use this body, examine its sensations, and find what we're looking for in the sensations of the body. But don't harm the Naga serpent. Thank you very much. May... I'm sorry. Do we do questions and then chant? Okay. We'll do a few questions. Okay. Will you just explain the Naga serpent part again and how that relates to um, the body, I think? The Naga serpent, in, in my understanding, okay, in my understanding is a way that at that time, it predates Buddhism. So the, the Naga serpent is part of the understanding prevalent at the Buddhist time, part of yoga. So the mysterious source of human energy is seen as a, as a Naga serpent. And that energy sits uh, coiled in, in the hara, in the, in the center of the body. And they, they took care of that serpent. So they fed it, they thought about it, think about our human energy. We, we also, we have our own ways of thinking about it that we now think makes sense, because it makes sense to us. But to other people, it sounds kind of funny to talk about how I feel energetically. You know, uh, So people on the different coasts have different ways of talking about it. And even if you go from coast to coast, there are different ways to talk about it. And we all sound quite funny to each other. But the way they talked about it was as in the imagery of a serpent coiled. And sometimes he would be asleep. He or she would be asleep, like the snake goes dormant and couldn't be coaxed into action. Sometimes it's out of control and is flailing in your body. So then you got to say, um, people say, why are you so agitated? It's the snake. You know? The snake is, is wild. I don't know what he wants. I'll ask him, hang on, what do you want? <laughs> oh yeah, he needs to go for a run. And then the snake will calm down. So the snake is an, inner, is an, is an image of the very profound energy in the center of, of your being that uh, you have to cultivate and take care of. So for him to throw out the Naga serpent would be to die. Okay? Yeah. Hi, Galen. Yeah. Um, We've recently been having a kind of an exploration about um, the traditional and culturally embedded Buddhism, mm -hmm. you know, that has um, this, this imagery, these deities and these Buddhas and these Bodhisattvas and these forms. And our, you know, we've been questioning, you know, what's essential, what will bring people in, and what might kind of turn people off, you know, mm -hmm. because it's so alien. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of an open discussion. So I really actually appreciated this very kind of traditional teaching today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and also the, the idea of, of this kind of mystery, this non-rational part, you mm -hmm. know, um, about the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas, you know, the Blessed One. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I guess I'm, I'm, I have two things I wanted to say. One is a question to you about your own experience in working in, with a lay community and people coming from all sorts of backgrounds with, you know, having lived in a monastery, this stuff feels really lovely to me. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. <laughs> but I realize 
not everybody has those kinds of associations. Mm -hmm. um, but I also just wanted to say, I, I really deeply appreciate from my perspective um, how these forms help me um, really get out of this rational, separate self. Mm -hmm. So, um, actually, right before I came here, I was struggling with something, and I, at one point, I just gave up, you know, when I said help. And being an ex-Catholic, you know, I, I kind of said help to my own ancestors, you know, my own family, and... Um, the BVM. What's that? The Blessed Virgin Mary. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite, but almost. <laughs> and so, but there was something that actually deeply released in me doing that, because I didn't have to hold on or feel like I was doing this all myself. Mm -hmm. So I, I appreciate it, you know, but I also get, get kind of um, concerned sometimes, you mm -hmm. know, that, that when we present in this very formal, traditional way with the traditional teachings, will people um, be able to take in what's being offered in that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a, it's a very, very important question, and can I give a, a Zen answer first? <laughs> if, if they can't take it in, they shouldn't hinder the part of them that does take it in. That's the Zen way of answering it. Your mind doesn't like it, your body is taking it in. But it's an important question, but it's an important question for the whole culture because there is a mystery on the other side. There's a huge mystery. And I assure you, and Tom can attest, Houston is as full of um, non-Buddhists, lay people, as Brooklyn. So uh, when I talk about deities there, I used to be very shy about talking about deities, but they've gotten used to it. And <laughs> <laughs> But it's just a word for the mystery. I could go on a long disquisition about how we've replaced that in our culture with other kinds of adulation, like celebrity worship and things like that. Not this group, but you know, there's a deep human urge to see the extraordinary beauty in something. And people in the Buddhist time were able to actually see deities walking around, but they would just see you, you know, and they'd see she's. There she is, a bodhisattva. They, uh, they were able to allow themselves to see that. And we have this thing, we have, we have the fork, delve with the knife. We've got the fork of doubt and we've got the um, uh, bunch of corrosive skepticism. Not, not you, not, not any of you here, but it exists. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, so we, we will let it go, you know, we'll let go, definitely we'll let go the forms of uh, incredibly beautiful deities that we've inherited, although I'm going to the, the Met tomorrow to look at this great show, the Metropolitan Museum of, of Asian art that's come, you know, beautiful ways of representing the deities. So we can let that go and it will take a, another shape, but we have to, excuse me, we have to re-sacralize the earth. We have to see how beautiful it is. I, and in Houston, one of my big causes is, this will sound funny to you, but one of my big causes is recycling. Because people in Houston don't really recycle. We have this terrible record. It's terrible. You guys, I don't know why you do it, but you do it. And I, it's hard to convince people in Houston to do it. And so what I've, I've taken on as a a cause to actually consider trash a sacred thing, or at least worthy enough of your attention, my attention, our attention, to actually look for the little triangle and then make a, a choice about where it goes. Because it's going back into the earth and we should decide where it goes. And there's a phrase in, in commentary to a koan that says, how many times have I been down into the green dragon's cave for you on your behalf? And I, I used that in a lecture in Houston recently because that's what it feels like when I'm going down into the trash to recycle for my beloved group. How many times have I been down into the Green Dragon's Cave for you? <laughs> but until we see how sacred it all is, uh, you know, it's a problem. So in those days, they were able to separate certain things out. This is sacred. The Brahman, the deities, the monks, they're sacred. 
and now we have to decide what we're going to consider sacred. Instead of saying nothing is sacred, we have to resacralize it. Is that okay? Does that sound okay? Yeah. And when we make an appeal, help comes. So, but thank you. It's such an important question. Any? Thank you for that beautiful talk. It was really very moving. Um, you said at one point in this story that you were sitting and you recognized something and you realized that it was that toad, uh, the toad image or symbol of the uh, despair that comes with anger. And so you took the knife and you plunged in with it. And um, I was wondering if you could uh, describe that process for you of taking the knife in and expunging or working with the toad. Oh, very good question. Are you a doctor? Uh, no, I'm, okay. uh, I'm a sick Surgeon. man. I'm a sick man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Part of the explanation was that the knife is uh, wisdom. So keen wisdom. And so with keen wisdom, or whatever version of it I had available at that moment, I, I looked at that feeling. It really was a feeling, you know. It was a, it's kind of a nauseous feeling. Uh, I thought, hmm, here I am just sitting here, and there's this kind of nauseated feeling slightly. What is it? So I looked around it, like with a knife. You know, you carefully cut things when you're cutting things, or sewing, you carefully cut you don't just randomly cut, you carefully trim around the edge. So I looked, oh, kind of a yucky feeling. What then stirs up in the rest of the body system as I'm looking at that system, at that uh, feeling? Um, and then, then I saw something. I can't remember now what it was. It might have been that people threw away things that they should have recycled, you know? <laughs> and then there's this sort of despair. How will I ever change my group to make them recycle? Because I, I love them. I don't want to change people. I want to give them the present of awareness of that this matters. These little things matter. Right. Yeah. Right. So there's a little uh, feeling. But with that knife, that wisdom, I just examined all around it. And without intending to, I was just looking at it. I didn't intend to make it go away, but it did get thrown out. Mm. It just relaxed. Lovely. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So I um, want to talk more about the toad. Um, <laughs> um, does the toad deserve a life of its own? Does it deserve to not be thrown away? And um, is there violence that you commit against the toad when you, when you uproot it from its home and check it out? Oh, mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so I'm sort of... So it's, it's a metaphorical question. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Well, no, where, where were you going with it? I can talk um, about the metaphor. But. There are some places where, um, <clears throat> sorry, um, where anger is, um, ha- serves a function. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Recycling is one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the planet. Yeah. Um, Social justice. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, so, um, how how do you how do you um, how do you work with that? Mm-hmm. Very good question. Well, you could look at it in in the form of the metaphor. You could look at it as liberating the toad. So here he is stuck in my emotional stew. So you could look at it at it as liberating it, looking at it more fully and putting it out there and letting it hop away. Uh, anger is really an interesting emotion, partly because it is very much associated. Buddhists made this connection a long time ago, but now cognitive people study it when they look at brain images. Anger lights up our social emotions. 
So anger, unlike uh, various sadness, for instance, which is a, an isolating emotion, although, of course, when we're sad, we know we can go toward our friends, but anger specifically is a social emotion pushes us toward people. And it also um, blurs our assessment of a situation, so it makes us take risks. So in terms of social justice, it's very handy because it pulls us toward people, it makes us estimate the risk in our own favor, and makes us do things. Uh, so you kind of have to keep that in mind, that our judgment is being affected. And, 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 and another thing, this is, anger has many different flavors. So this one I took as an as a, um, energy-suppressing flavor, the toad despairing anger. Is a, is a special flavor because it compromises your one's energy, one's ability to actually do this difficult practice of looking at things clearly. So it wasn't just bright, flashy anger. It's uh, an energy-deadening anger. And so once it was liberated, then you know you could go about being more clear. I could be, go about being more clear in what I wanted people to do if it was about recycling. I can't remember right now. But then I could just say, people, please, you know, this is how you recycle a tea box. Or you could say, people, please, you know, we have to be fair here, rather than despairing. Is that? Thank you. Good question. Is that enough for now? Oh, please. Um, not specifically about the toad, uh -huh. but I'm very curious. I'm very curious if you might talk a little bit more about your practice as an inner energetic dialogue. Mm -hmm. I haven't really heard anyone speak about meditation that way, and that's a very intriguing model for me. Mm. Meditation as an inner energetic model. As a dialogue. Oh, as a dialogue. With the energies in your body, and that's how you're talking about the toad, but mm -hmm. you also talked about um, the practice mm -hmm. as a, a non-intellectual Mm -hmm. Practice, mm -hmm. and so it seems like you're talking about a non-intellectual dialogue with the energy in your body. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to hear more about that. Well, it's true. That is how I experience it as an as a <clears throat> ongoing dialogue, not necessarily with words, but I'm always assessing it. I'm always assessing it. And could you, could you be slightly more specific though? Because um, not sure exactly where to go with it. Sure. What does okay. it look like for you when you're sitting zazen and you're exploring to see what's there? Okay. Well, I, one of the things is, uh, one of my, my favorite images now, of course I've been meditating for a very long time, so the um, things that, I, that encourage me have changed or I take up different emphases. And one is that these days, for a while now, I let the wind blow through me. So I, when I sit down after a busy day or after something, I, uh, first I just let the wind blow through me. So energetically, I relax everything so that there's more space. Just let the wind blow through. That's one thing I do. And that sort of whirls around a lot of clutter and gets it out of there into the recycling bins. <laughs> and, and uh, then I let it flow, and different things will come up. And I examine them from an energetic point of view, see what's happening. So I do notice when something happens muscularly, in the muscular system. That tells me a lot about the issue. And also, I, I hope Tia doesn't mind me saying this, but I think the edge of sleep is a very important practice point. So I don't particularly fight the edge of sleep because interesting things can come up. And energetically, me, probably like many of you, I don't always get enough sleep. I just, there's just not enough time in the world to sleep also. So there's often a tiredness going on and I observe how that affects my thinking a lot. How that colors my thinking. And when you've had enough sleep, your thinking is much clearer. 
which is a rare occurrence for me. So, but that's part of it. Is that good for now? Okay. Thanks. Tom. Yes. Yes. Could you repeat it again? Relax, which is the wind blowing through you. Investigate or analyze, which is after the space has been made. Then look honestly at constituents, and then play with them, which is sort of my favorite verb. In other words, don't try to impress anything that you're holding on. Right. Exactly. Yes, that's it's based on that, and so that play is, as you said, it's an energetic play. So it's not a mental play that I do. Whenever I'm just intellectualizing, which I can do, I know what that feels like, or I'll make lists of things that have to be done for the Zen Center. That's an intellectual activity. And after a while, the body feels kind of arid when it's doing that. So it's a kind of play that's very energetic. It's, it's playing with stuff embedded in the body. Tensions or um, feelings of joy or uh, this little nausea feeling. So it's, it's an embedded kind of play, mind and body. Thank you. The woman behind you raised your hand. Sorry, I don't have a lot of voice. <clears throat> I just want to ask you a question that one of my teachers asks me a lot, which is, um, what does the doubt serve? I can elaborate if you want, but that's, I mean, I usually jump to, well, it doesn't serve anything. But I was yeah. just wondering why, why we have that. and Why we have it? Yeah. Oh, it's very important, actually. <clears throat> so when, when, what does the doubt serve is... I would take that as a pretty useful question because we have to have skepticism. We have to have a wise kind of uh, exploration going on. It's part of our wisdom. So we, we use it as a tool to uh, investigate what people are doing, what we're doing, what the situation involves. So I think there are a lot of words for doubt in Sanskrit, but we just use one word for both kinds of wholesome and unwholesome corrosive doubt. So to be, you know, to stand and question something is one of our greatest skills as a species. We don't just go blindly in. We look at it and we use all of the information we've accumulated through everything to look at it and question. So that's the good kind of doubt. Is this really good for me? And people should bring that into Zen practice. You should bring it in and look clearly. But then the other kind of doubt is um, unwholesome and corrosive. And it gets attached to feelings of, um, of uh, inability to do something, unworthiness to do something. And then it gradually starts wearing, sanding down, corroding the, the serpent. You know, You could say it puts the serpent back to sleep and then we just can't even act in any way. I don't know which way to go, I'm, in, I'm immobilized. So that's the kind of doubt that is listed as one of the five main hindrances, because we can't act. So it's better to act without knowing fully the circumstances. It's much better to act without fully knowing the outcome than it is to not act at all, out of doubt. Thank you. Okay, one more that Eno says. <laughs> Hi. Um, when you delve with the knife, the delving is the energy you bring? Oh, that's good. Is that right? That's exactly right. So the knife is the wisdom, and the delving is, yes, that is what he said. 
The delving is the energy. Mm-hmm. So um, in practice, what does that look like? That looks like not being asleep. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we mean by awake. You're just, you're attentive to what's happening and you're watching it. You're yeah. watching what's happening. Sometimes I'll, I'll be sitting zazen and um, the first 10 minutes are, are pretty clear and um, very sharp. And then without even noticing it, um, something sort of, I don't know, relaxes or gets a little bit, I don't want to use the word dead, but more, um, less sharp. Right. Um, so is there, is there something you do to bring back energy? Yes. Um, the first thing is you, we let go of that bright awareness that we start with. Just let it go. It's kind of our daily mind. And it feels really good, but we let it go. And then, it's, then we go into this territory, like as I, I call it, the wind blowing through me. I'm not trying to bring that bright, good mind, your good mind to, to bear on what's happening. Just let it go. And then this blurry territory of what the body is up to. And if it needs sleep, it's going to kind of lower our energy level. Or it's hungry, it starts to distract us with thoughts of food. Or it is holding some sort of pain that we're carrying around because somebody was mean to us earlier. And it starts to confuse us. No, I want to be bright. I don't want to think about that pain. I don't want to think about that. But what this text is saying, go down there with a knife and see, oh, there's some pain down there. And then it says, throw it out. It doesn't say, then stay down there and only wallow in that. It's saying, okay, it's pain. Wow. Thank you. Interesting. (laughs) So we go down, and it is unfamiliar and kind of gray territory. Yeah. Thank you. Good question. Now do we chant? <laughs> Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.